as a child psychiatrist, I see so many kids that are either neurodivergent and or POC who get in trouble for doing things that are age appropriate. You know, I have to advocate for them. Parents have to advocate for them. Sometimes the school still doesn't care. It's very frustrating um, when you're like this kid, like just because you are treating them like they're older, they're still a kid. Hello and welcome to the Women and ADHD podcast. I'm your host, Katie Weber. I was diagnosed with ADHD at the age of 45, and it completely turned my world upside down. I've been looking back at so much of my life, school, jobs, my relationships, all of it with this new lens, and it has been nothing short of overwhelming. I quickly discovered I was not the only woman to have this experience, and now I interview other women who, like me, discovered in adulthood they have ADHD and are finally feeling like they understand who they are and how to best lean into their strengths, both professionally and personally. Okay, we're going to jump right into episode 80, in which I interview Dr. Lucrezia Rupert. Dr. Rupert is a child, adolescent, and adult psychiatrist who specializes in neurodiversity, children with trauma, children in foster care or who have been adopted, and adults with developmental disabilities. She's also an activist and co-founder of Physician Women SOAR, and SOAR stands for Support, Organize, Advocate, and Reclaim. It's an organization of physician women that raises money and awareness while educating on intersectional causes such as racial equality, sexual orientation, gender identity, religious, a-religious, disability, and neurodiverse equality. She also serves her community through her participation in BLACK, Black Leaders Acquiring Collective Knowledge. Dr. Rupert aims to help empower those with mental health diagnoses and neurodiversity through her company, Insightful Consultant, via speaking engagements, education, and training on a plethora of mental health and diversity-related topics. And she herself is an adoptive parent of two wonderful neurodivergent children. We talk all about her diagnosis when she was in med school, as well as many of the issues and stereotypes faced by Black girls and all children of color when it comes to growing up neurodiverse. We also talk about the ways in which she is teaching neurodiverse kids and their parents to advocate for themselves, and we discuss some of the current deficits in general psychiatric training when it comes to adult ADHD and why many adult clinicians don't always feel comfortable treating ADHD in adults, especially women. This was a fantastic interview, so I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. I will start out with asking you kind of when were you diagnosed and what was happening in your life at that time that really made you kind of put put those connect those dots and think I really need to look into this. So I was actually diagnosed in residency. I started suspecting I had ADHD actually in medical school when we were learning about it. And I was like, (laughs) literally, I fit every single criteria. (laughs) Um, And, you know, at med school, there's a running joke that you think you have everything that you learn about. So um, even though I thought I had ADHD, I didn't really try to do anything about it at that time um, because I, you know, it was kind of the joke that everybody thinks you have everything. And I also didn't, because of the stigma, um, I didn't want people to think I was just trying to get like stimulants to get through medical school. Um, So I went into medical school wanting to be a pediatrician. I want to be a pediatrician who helped traumatize kids. Um, and I ended up being a child psychiatrist. So that is what I do. But when I went into medical school, I didn't really know a lot about psychiatry. So, you know, at that time, I was really concerned about the stigma and people thinking I was just trying to um, like get a leg up in medical school. But actually, um, when things really hit, hit a wall was in residency, my 
first year of residency, um, you have to take what's called step three. And obviously it's, it's three kind of boards you have to take to get your medical license, just your general medical license. Um, step one, you take after the second year med school. Step two, you take after the third year med school. And step three, you take um, after your first year of residency, and then you can get your general license, and then you get your board and your specific uh, specialty after you finish residency. So anyway, I took step three, and I failed it. <laughs> um, and step three is a two-day test. So it's two days, eight hours each day. And it's just, I mean, absolutely impossible for me to pay attention for two days straight for eight hours each day. Um, I had never failed anything important in my life. Um, and so that was like, okay, like I know I felt this because of ADHD. Like I know I have this. I know this is why I failed it. Um, so at that point, I went in and sought out a diagnosis. Um, and even my supervisor, um, which obviously was a psychiatrist because I was in psychiatry residency, um, my supervisor was like, yeah, I didn't really believe in adult ADHD a lot until I met you. And I was like, okay. <laughs> Sure, I don't know how to take that, but let's go with it. Um, so I got diagnosed after that test, um, after I failed that test, um, took it again with um, medication. I don't even think I really studied. Uh, I mean, I, I'm sure I studied more, but I didn't put a lot of serious study into it um, as going through questions, and I passed it just fine. So um, that was kind of how I came about being diagnosed. And, and once you did receive the diagnosis, how did it kind of change your outlook? I guess, you know, what were you, what were you looking back at throughout your own life, um, thinking, oh, my goodness, the signs were there all along? <laughs> it just makes so much sense. Um, <laughs> so I always did well academically in school. But even with that, I always had, um, like, questions that I would miss. Even if I made an A or I made a B, there were always questions that I would miss because I, I misread the question because I was going through it too fast. And I didn't read the question or I didn't read the answers correctly. And I, I knew the information, but I missed it. So even with doing well academically, I could have done better had I was, you know, had I been paying attention. Um, I was definitely one of those students that the teacher put to work after I was done because I finished everything fast. Um, so the teacher put me to work uh, in elementary specifically, you know, kind of doing the teacher helper type stuff to help me. Not that I was necessarily going to get in trouble. I wasn't a kid that um, that caused a lot of commotion, but I did talk a lot. So, um, I guess to keep me from, you know, interfering with other people, um, I, my handwriting is atrocious. It's so bad. <laughs> I thought that so was a prerequisite say, for doctors. <laughs> I know. So everybody makes the joke, like I knew I was going to be a doctor forever, but it's, you know, it's also common in ADHD that a lot of people, a lot of kids or I guess a lot of people, um, have a have trouble with handwriting because of just their brain going too fast for what the hand you know can do and a lot of kids need to go to occupational therapy so definitely um we were just joking about that last week me and my mom was like definitely I needed occupational therapy didn't know you know that at the time um but I remember getting papers handed back to me in, in elementary by junior high and high school that's when kind of typing things kind of took off but in elementary I got papers handed back to me ungraded because the teacher could not read them <laughs> So um, sensory, like there's, you know, um, sensory issues that I have that are like, oh, that makes sense. Um, very, I was very, very picky with, uh, and still am somewhat, but way worse when I was a child with sensory things related to food or like mushy foods or certain textures of food. Um, 
yeah, so all of that really just was like, oh, all of this makes, you know, complete sense now. Um, I forget things all the time. I lose things all the time. Um, I actually had my lights cut off when I was in college because I forgot to pay the bill. Not because I didn't have the money, but just because I forgot to pay the bill for two months straight because it has to take at least two months for them to cut it off at that time. Um, and I was, came home on the phone and went to cut on the lights in my room. And I was, I was renting an apartment at the time. Uh, and they didn't cut on. So I was like, oh, I need to call, you know, the mechanic, the the maintenance guy. The light in my room isn't working. <laughs> and I just kept talking on the phone. Then I got up to use the bathroom and went to cut on that light. And it didn't work. And I was like, let me call you back. I think my lights are cut off. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, lots of things that now made sense. <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, I never would have said I had any sensory issues whatsoever. I never thought about myself having any sensory issues until my diagnosis. And then I was sort of looking into what, you know, the relationship between sensory overwhelm and kind of, uh, you know, and and rage, because that was always a big one for me, right, which was like going from zero to rage seemingly out of nowhere when I not realizing that a lot of that came from sensory overstimulation and like, especially when my kids were little, right. And like, there's crying, there's TV, there's music, you know, and I would just, I think those are the moments that are so fascinating to me now looking back through this new lens and realizing how much of my, uh, you know, my diagnosis of depression came from feeling like I was, you know, an inadequate woman, mother, partner, because of my rage issues, you know, and never really feeling like a depressed person, but really feeling like everybody in my family was walking on eggshells because of me. So therefore I'm a terrible person. So therefore, ergo, I'm depressed. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so that's been really fascinating to kind of see that connection of like all of this, all of these sensory issues that I did have that I just never even paid attention to, or never even took a moment to, to stop and think about. Yeah, that too. I definitely get the irritability from like sensory overload and both of my kids, are also neurodiverse and, you know, all of us have different sensory needs. So sometimes they're needing to like rub on me and I'm like, oh God, please leave me alone. <laughs> Stop touching me. But I don't want to, you know, you can't like push your kid off and be like, although we have talked about boundaries, like mama needs no touching right now. You know how your ears hurt when you hear, you know, so we do that, but it's, you know, you can't do that first instinct of like, get off of me right now. <laughs> I know. Yeah, it is very helpful to be able to like explain what is happening now. Absolutely, mm-hmm. for sure. And then teaching your kids how to do the same thing, right? Right. And then you had mentioned, oh, about being a really great student. Because I was, that's something, you know, I'm always fascinated about w- with, you know, women and girls, because I was not. I, I was sort of, you know, started out as a great student, but by high school, I had basically kind of given up. I sort of felt like there were, you know, so many criticisms from my teachers about about concentrating and and being quiet and behaving and all of that. You know, I, I probably would have been diagnosed with oppositional defiant disorder uh, had that really existed in the eighties. <laughs> you know, uh, but. At, I realized like, you know, my relationship with school was really just like, oh my God, I just need to graduate and get the hell out of here. Um, and barely, barely managed to. Um, and so it's always fascinating to me when I hear women who are diagnosed, who, who seek a diagnosis in adulthood and their doctors will say to them like, well, you didn't have it in childhood. So therefore you don't have it. You can't possibly have it in adulthood. And I'm like, well, there's a chicken or egg thing there going on because, you know, women and girls, girls are just not diagnosed. Um right. But I think there's also like, it's, you know, 
uh, girls just do better in school. You know, I just don't feel like a lot of the stereotypical uh, symptoms that are traits that teachers are looking for really exist in girls. Um, and, um, but I guess, so, but teachers are really kind of the first one, the, that sort of the first one, uh, you know, what am I, what's the word I'm looking for? Like, yeah, the, the first, first, line. first line, right. In terms of like realizing, because I, I was very fascinated when you were talking to Linda Rogley in the video recently in the, in this year's Palooza and you were talking about, mm -hmm. um, the fact that like, you know, we see that we see ADHD, uh, we, you know, we define ADHD by its deficits, right? So you sort of, you see kids are going into the classroom and the deficits are being seen in the classroom because they're expected to do all of these things that are impossible for neurodivergent children. And then, so teachers are, are the first line of, of diagnosing them. Whereas at home, the kids are sort of just themselves and are free to be themselves. Right. Um, so I'm completely losing my track of thought. Hold on. So my question, I guess, my question is, uh, with with teachers being the first line of defense, like this is where I think it's so fascinating to me where it comes to like the gender divide and the racial divide in terms of like what is being what behaviors are even being looked at as ADHD behaviors. Right. Uh, there seems to be such um, discrimination in terms of, of what is looked at as something that needs an accommodation versus what is looked at as something that's being punished. Yeah. Cause if you look, so if you look at my schoolwork, um, academically, I mean, I did, I did good. I was in gifted classes, but again, I rushed through everything. I was generally the first or second person to turn things in. Like stuff was literally illegible sometimes. Um, there's definitely, and I don't know if the teacher knew that, but I'm guessing they knew that I would miss things uh, that I absolutely knew. I mean, they heard me talking in class. I would assume they, you know, know that. I mean, I wasn't running around the classroom, things like that. I wasn't hyperactive in that sense. I was definitely impulsive and um, didn't focus and concentrate. But because I focused and concentrated enough to get through what I need to get through, um, you know, definitely wasn't brought up as, oh, I think your child needs extra help. Like I was, I was doing fine in school. So what why would they say I need help with, you know, school's role is to help you with things that they need you to do. And I didn't need any. Uh, well, I mean, I did. You know what I'm saying? But I got through enough that it didn't raise to a certain concern that, hey, she needs extra help with things or she needs accommodations or she needs to be in occupational therapy. You know, that kind of thing. I was doing fine in school, so that was ignored. Yeah. Well, that's something I feel like I talk about a lot with women who were who did very well in school. You know, that that idea that like when you're doing very well in school and you're trying extra hard and it's not really being kind of um, acknowledged, you know, how much extra you have to work in order to do some of the things that are you're being done. And then you get into adulthood and then you wonder, we wonder why we're all, you know, uh, diagnosed with depression and anxiety <laughs> because we were working so hard to be self-reliant, right? And then that idea that like asking for help, needing help ends up becoming uh, akin to failure for a lot of us. And so this idea that like, you have to always be the best, you have to work really hard becomes part of our identity. And then, you know, and then when you do end up in a situation where you're struggling in, you know, college or motherhood or all of these other ways in which as women, we kind of implode, uh, mm -hmm. it's seen as a failure, you know, because you, you're suddenly in a situation where you're needing help. Yeah. A lot of the kids I see, um, high school is where they, well, of course, if I'm seeing them, then somebody is recognizing an issue. But um, so I see a lot of kids that kind of hit that 
that threshold in high school. A lot of people that go undiagnosed generally hit it in college and or grad school or, or motherhood because that's when you have like additional responsibilities that suddenly are just too much, you know, for you to handle. I'd like to take a moment to thank BetterHelp for sponsoring this podcast. If you're a regular listener of this podcast, you know I am a big proponent of therapy. Therapy provides me the best opportunity for verbal processing, something that is so important for my kind of brain and my sense of self. What I love about BetterHelp is that it's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It is professional therapy that's done securely online from the comfort of your home. They assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. And it's available for clients worldwide. So you get access to a broad range of expertise that might not be available to you locally. It also tends to be more affordable than traditional offline therapy and financial aid is available. If you visit their website and read their testimonials, there are actually quite a few reviews that specifically reference Help with ADHD. As a special offer for listeners of the Women and ADHD podcast, you'll get 10% off your first month. Simply sign up at betterhelp.com slash women ADHD. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash women ADHD. And there's a link in the show notes. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. Any other parents out there who have struggled to instill good financial habits into their kids? I know I have. And that's why I'm so excited to tell you about the sponsor of today's episode, Go Henry by Acorns, the smart debit card and app for kids 6 through 18. With Go Henry, kids can learn about money, set spending and saving goals, and even track chores and earn allowance money right within the app. They learn the value of money by using their Go Henry debit cards, while we as parents can set spend limits and help guide their journey while staying informed every step of the way. It gives me so much peace of mind to know that I'm using a smart tool to proactively teach my kids about money and prepare them for future success. Set your kids up for success and get started today at gohenry.com slash women ADHD. Again, that's gohenry.com slash women ADHD. TNCs apply, renews from $4.99 per month unless canceled. After I was listening to your video uh, on 80, uh ADHD Palooza, which was fantastic. I was like, oh my goodness, I have to interview you. And I, of course, went down the Dr. Rupert rabbit hole and was reading <laughs> your blog articles. And the one that really stuck out to me was The Case of Grace, uh, the article that you had written about some of the stereotypes that do exist in the classroom when it comes to Black girls. And so The Case of Grace, just for background, she was um, in Michigan, right? And she was a high school student with ADHD who was, um, this was pre-pandemic, right? Or was this right at the right. beginning of the pandemic? It was pre-pandemic. Okay. So do you want to explain it? You can better explain kind of what this case was. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so basically she was, she, she was, had already had sort of a minor misdemeanor, right? She had been mm -hmm. caught like shoplifting or something. And, and she, uh, was on probation and then part of her probation was that she had to finish her homework. And when, so when she didn't complete her homework, she was sent to prison. And, you know, just such this ridiculous extreme response on, on behalf mm -hmm. of the judge. And so the blog article that I will probably link to in the show notes, because it's so good, you, re you really break down kind of some of these stereotypes for Black girls in the classroom, especially when they are neurodivergent, where it's... And I was really fascinated by this idea that, like... Um, that girls, black girls especially, are like receive harsher punishment than their peers because they are seen as older and mm -hmm. and less innocent. And that I was really surprised by that because I mean, I, it makes sense when you yeah. write it, when you see it, but I was like, that really I found profound. 
Well, you know, and if, if one of the things that I talk about all the time with me personally, I'm 4'11". So for people out there that you know, <laughs> haven't, ever, haven't ever seen me, I'm 4'11". And growing up, I was tiny. And I truly believe that as a Black child, that that was very protective for me because I just, I mean, you couldn't really see me as older when I was 4'11 and tiny. Mm. Um, and, you know, 4'11 is the tallest I've gotten. So obviously I was shorter than that growing up. Um, so I actually had a lot of irritability with my ADHD. I uh, definitely go from that zero to a hundred. Um, I was kind of known for quote unquote going off all the time, but because, um, I guess in school teachers didn't normally take me to that place. Um, so when I did get in trouble, um, because I did get in trouble often, it was kind of overlooked like, oh, she's smart. She does well. Um, and I think, again, because I was so tiny that I was actually seen as my actual age or younger, people were more protective of me than it would be usual for most Black students. Um, definitely, I've, I've dealt with microaggressions and racism, but I, but I truly believe my educational experience um, was a lot better just due to my size. Um, I, I know kids that were just as smart as I was. They were my friends that was just as smart as I was that were not, um, you know, nominated for gifted classes or, you know, if I did get mad at the teacher for whatever and said what I had to say, um, they would just kind of look at me and roll their eyes. Whereas my friend who did the exact same thing would, you know, get sent to the office. Or the few times I got sent to the office, maybe twice in high school. Um, and both times the principals were like, why are you here? What did they want us to do with you? But again, <laughs> but again, because my, my educational career, I was always so tiny that I think people were in, instinctively protective of me, which is not the norm for Black girls. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, you know, that's again, another reason why, even though I, I actually did have, I didn't have behavior problems, like I said, but I did have times where definitely that irritability going zero to 100 could have been a huge deal. Um, it has been a huge deal for so many Black girls. For me, it wasn't. And I think I had that protective factor that helped where that kind of mitigated <laughs> the fact that I was Black, which is not a protective factor, you know, in those kind of instances. Um, but yeah, I see so many, as a child psychiatrist, I see so many kids um, that are either neurodivergent and are POC who get in trouble for doing things that are age appropriate. And um you know, I have to advocate for them. Parents have to advocate for them. Sometimes the school still doesn't care. It's very frustrating um, when you're like this kid, like you, just because you are treating them like they're older, they're still a kid. You know, they're doing things that are are within the realm of age, which you would expect for a kid to do. Yeah, we're dealing, my husband and I deal with that all the time with our 15-year-old <laughs> because she looks like a woman, you know, like, and I think you, there is that kind of internal bias in terms of like, you should be more mature than you are in certain situations. And, you know, there are ways in which she is mature, but there are so many ways where we have to, you know, it's such a difficult age in terms of like really having to temper your expectations in terms Mm -hmm. of behaviors. And um, yeah, you know, it's fascinating to me because I feel like a lot of the, you know, maybe with boys because they develop later, they are sort of see almost like they're infantilized longer in the Mm -hmm. school system. And so a lot of their behaviors, if they're physically kind of jittery and and hyperactive and disruptive, it's really easy to be like, oh, there's ADHD. Whereas girls 
are, you know, more of the symptoms of ADHD are like the impulsivity or the disorganization or the forgetfulness. Those are all seen as character flaws. So right. naturally they will become defiant or, <laughs> or talk back or angry, right? Like we all, I think a lot of us as women deal with rage when in terms of just being mistreated. And, you know, I, mm-hmm. I say this, oh, I feel like a broken record. I say this all the time on the podcast where I'm like, is this ADHD or am I just an angry woman <laughs> who is a feminist in our society? Like, you know, so much of it comes down to sort of that emotional dysregulation that comes from being treated poorly, you know? Right. And and uh, I think our expectations must, just must be that much higher for women and girls in general mm-hmm. in terms of their behavior. It's interesting. Um, but I really appreciated that blog article because I think you, you know, I, you brought up so many of the issues and the, the expectations of girls right. are just so much different in terms of, you know, the uh, forgetfulness, like, and, and, and um, even the impulsivity that could have led to a misdemeanor, right. Which was this idea that like all of these, uh, all of these traits are viewed as character flaws. Yeah. It's something I really worry about with, with my daughter. My daughter is, is, is bigger um she's very impulsive um she's been i mean she's eight so she's been you know taking things which which eight-year-olds sometimes do um but she's a bigger you know child you know taking things out the store which also she has you know some other things going on um but that just really worries me for her and i'm like why are you like why are you even taking this? Like, we would have just bought it for you. But it's that impulsive to be not even thinking about asking or thinking, like, they may say no. And um, because she has, she does have other diagnoses, just that train of thought doesn't lead to, I shouldn't steal from the store. <laughs> um, now, the good thing about it, she's not very sneaky. <laughs> so we always generally catch her before we leave the store or right after. Uh, but still, um, those behaviors as she gets older really worry me for her in school. So far, we've, we've been lucky that we have people um, that understand her disabilities. But, you know, that that grace generally doesn't last through middle school and high school. So it's definitely a worry for me. Yeah, right. I mean, and and how quickly, how much, how dependent our kids are on the right adults at the right time. You know what I mean? <laughs> I think so, you know, a a poor experience with a bad teacher can, I think, set you off for years, if not your whole life, Um, you know. And the other interesting thing I I thought, I don't know if it was from that same Case of Grace blog article, if it was from a different one, but you talked about kind of, you know, there's a stereotype about minority communities not, you know, being dismissive of mental health labels. Um, and, and that that's actually much more of a, you know, um, uh, God, I feel like I'm losing my words today. Um, it's a misnomer that, you know, that there's actually the, it's not because they're dismissive of mental health, but it's because those labels will set their children back in, in, an, in an environment that is already hostile. And I thought that was really fascinating because I, you know, even I am not a person of color, but still worry about getting either of my children a diagnosis because I'm so concerned with how, um, you know, how misunderstood ADHD continues to be in the school system that I'm like, you are going to be viewed a certain way by the administration. And I'm not sure I'm ready for that. And so I thought that was a really interesting clarification. Yeah. And it's, it's really a fine line to walk. Um, 
you know, I generally take the stance of your kid is going to be labeled one way or the other. So they're either going to be labeled ADHD or, or lazy. Um, one diagnosis that I actually refuse to diagnose is you talked about it earlier. I actually don't diagnose oppositional divide disorder. I have never in my career diagnosed it. And my reasoning is it's, it's a... Um, it tells me you're oppositional, but why are you oppositional? Are you oppositional because of your ADHD, because of sensory issues, because you have a learning disability? Maybe because you just are very strong-willed and that's your personality, but I still need to know why. And because, oh, to me, ODD um, has even more stigma to me, to me than any other diagnosis. Like people look at that and say, oh, it's just a bad kid. I don't need to do any work. So I don't diagnose that. Like I'll call myself oppositional defined disorder because I am I'm very strong. <laughs> but as an adult, sure, I can say that about myself. But that's that's the one label that I refuse to put on any child because I think people see that and just immediately think whatever the issue is, it's the kid's fault. And we, the parents, the school, whatever, don't need to change anything we're doing because they're just oppositional. Yeah. Um, so. I definitely generally take the, you know, take the tone of you want to label your kid with something that can be helpful. My only exception is oppositional uh, defined disorder, and I just don't use it. <laughs> yeah, no, no, that makes perfect sense. It's it does not exist in a vacuum. It does not exist independent. Um, and and that's all that kind of reminds me of how many women I've I've met or spoken to or have DM'd me online about, um, you know going to their doctors and saying, I think I have ADHD. And the doctor is saying, let's treat the anxiety first before we talk about ADHD. And it's like anxiety that to me that I'm not a medical professional, but I'm like, that seems ridiculous to me because again, like anxiety is one of those things that does not exist independent of other, you know, uh, coexisting yeah, factors. So I do that sometimes, but so it's really hard. Sometimes it's really hard to tell if you have general anxiety or if you have anxiety from your ADHD symptoms. I generally, I see kids. I do see adults with developmental disabilities, but I see the more vulnerable adults like that are in group homes or things like that. Um, but with my kids or with my patients, I generally do try to tease that apart. Like, are you anxious because you have an anxiety disorder in ADHD? Or are you anxious because you're tired of being told you're not doing what you need to do and you're anxious because your ADHD treatments of your ADHD symptoms are not treated. You know, that's not easy to uh, tease apart all the time, but if I feel like somebody likely has an actual anxiety disorder because stimulants can make anxiety worse, I generally will start treatments for anxiety first. But I explain all that. And I explain that, you know, I'm not dismissing you. I want to make sure we have something protective on board before we add something that can make your anxiety worse. Now, if I get, if I get the feeling that... Um, your anxiety is due to your ADHD, then I start an ADHD treatment first. If I don't know, then I generally treat the anxiety first too. But I explain that. Like sometimes it's really hard to, te uh, to tease apart. And I, you know, I'm just very honest about that. Like I'm trying to tease this apart. I'm not quite sure. We're going to try to treat the anxiety first. Uh, make sure you have something protective on board before we treat the ADHD and we'll see what happens. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that also sort of lends to the idea that there are so many different types of medications that can be used to treat ADHD. And so many of us react so differently to various medications as well, or not at all. Uh, and so, you know, I think it's, it, yeah, I think it's such an incredible, like, how do you even begin to parse the spectrum of, of traumas and comorbidities and all the things that go into growing up uh, <laughs> neurodivergent yeah. and undiagnosed neurodivergent? And I, I think the biggest thing 
thing with women or with adults that are that go into the office and are told, let's treat your anxiety first. It's generally the person who's treating ADHD for adults isn't really comfortable with it. Because to be completely honest, um, I don't know why, but until recently, it seems like the medical world thought ADHD went away at 18. <laughs> I don't know why they thought that. But so a lot of people were just never taught how to treat ADHD. So they're not comfortable with that. They're comfortable saying let's treat anxiety first, but they're not, but they don't even know why they're saying that. So, um, you know, when you're trained to treat ADHD and anxiety, like child psychiatrists are, I think people are a little more comfortable if I say that, because I have a reason why, and I've explained the next steps, whereas um, and I'm not knocking any, any special, but even adult psychiatry doesn't have a lot of training on treating ADHD, you really learn how to treat ADHD in child psychiatry, and that's a real deficit in psychiatry because, again, all of our neurodevelopmental disorders do not go away when you turn 18. Um, and the way psychiatry is set up is you do adult psychiatry first, and then you do additional fellowships if you want to do child or if you want to do forensics. So you go through all adult with very little training on how to treat child disorders, um, but those disorders also exist in adults. So a lot of people are just not comfortable and it's it's very frustrating as an adult who needs to be treated. Um, but it's also very frustrating for clinicians because they just don't feel comfortable and they don't know what they're doing. Um, so there is a push um, in, in the medical world too to be more comfortable treating adult ADHD. And that's just going slowly, more slowly than than we would like for it to go. Right, and I think we that's another thing we talk about a lot on this podcast, which is the fact that like education and around what adult ADHD looks like is booming on places like social media and TikTok. And, you know, women are going on Instagram and TikTok and they're seeing their self-diagnosing based on oh, this overwhelming amount of evidence in terms of what does ADHD look like in women? What does autism look like in adult women? And so then they're going to their doctors and because, you know, the, the overwhelming... Uh, opinion on social media is don't self-diagnose. <laughs> and so then you go to your doctor and the doctor's like, no, you know, that there's gatekeeping or, you know, there's, there's the sense of like, how come, like, do I know more? You know, it just seems like there's this big divide in terms of what people are finding out and researching on their own and their whole lived experience versus, you know, a 15 minute um, appointment with their GP where they're just completely dismissed. And then they're like, now what? Right. Yeah. Totally agree. When I was diagnosed with ADHD, it completely turned my world upside down. I looked back at so much of my life, my grades in school, my multiple careers and hobbies, my friendships, my marriage, motherhood, my relationship with food and my body, like all of this with a new lens. And it was overwhelming to say the least. If you've been diagnosed with ADHD and you're feeling blown away by this new insight into your brain and how it operates... I totally understand. I can help you begin to sort through this chaos, explore who you are and how your brain operates so you can finally start to lean into your strengths and begin to use them to your advantage moving forward. Together, we can work to identify what obstacles you've been facing and create strategies to help you start living a more fulfilling, gratifying life. Head over to womeninadhd.com coaching to book a 30-minute initial consult with me, so we can figure out if my brand of one-on-one -on -one coaching is right for you. Again, that's women and ADHD.com slash coaching. And you can find that link in the episode show notes. Uh, but I'm curious, like what advice when you work with children, like how do, how do you, will you teach children 
especially girls to kind of advocate for themselves and, and be themselves, but at the same time, you know, navigate a system that is not necessarily going to be very friendly to who they are essentially, you know? Mm-hmm. So I guess the two main things that I do for every single patient is I, um, if that patient is verbal, I try to talk to them alone from the, I mean, they could be three, four, um, from the very beginning, I want them to feel comfortable talking to me, you know, by themselves, telling me what's going on with them, telling me how I need to help them. And, you know, that's teaching them to advocate for themselves, right? Of course, with kids, I need to get, you know, the adult um, parent, the caregiver um, side of things before I make choices. But I always, always talk to my kids or give my patients um basically the power. I let them know the decisions I'm making for their medicines. I ask them if they're okay with it. Um, and unless things are dangerous, if they're not okay with it, I try to, you know, work with them till they are okay with it. Um, the other, so that's one of the things I do when they get about eight or nine, I start kind of asking them, do they know their medicines? What, what, what are they taking? What, why are they taking it? Like, can they explain to me you know, their diagnosis and how that affects them. So I really just started kind of making sure that they have the language to be able to advocate for themselves. Um, The other thing that I do, I don't know what I was going to (laughs) say. What was the question? It was basically, how do you, how do you teach kids to kind of toe that line between you know, being their true selves and and not being apologetic for who they are, but at the same time, navigating a system that might require them to be a certain way. Yeah. So the other thing I do is, is teaching them to find their people. Um, so I, uh, you know, and a lot of times finding your people doesn't happen till after high school for some people like college, uh, but not with the internet, like there's, you know, groups and, and boards and things like that. So teaching kids to find their people, um, hang in there until you can find your people. School sucks right now, but one day you will find your people. <laughs> so, <laughs> so teaching them to find their people, you know, find, find their group that will accept them as they are. And then just teaching them the language to advocate for themselves. Yeah. Yeah. That's one thing I talk about with my kids too, because I have a 15 year old and an 11 year old and, but neither of them is officially diagnosed, but I mean, they both, I think are neurodivergent. And so we talk a lot about like, you don't have to, you know, you can still ask what you need without having to label it as being, I need this because of ADHD. Like you still have a right to that, to advocate for yourself. And so, and I think it's also a good practice for myself to like, ask for things without labeling why I need those things. It's just like to practice advocate, right? So like I, if I say at the doctor's office, like you can't just tell me things, I need things written down. (laughs) Uh, That's, it doesn't matter if I have ADHD or not, or or it doesn't even come up. It's just a, a practice for me to advocate and ask for my things. And so I'm like trying to teach them that stuff. But then I also like they're in the public school system, like advocating is not encouraged. <laughs> Advocate, self-advocacy not. <laughs> is not encouraged. It's keeping quiet and shutting up is encouraged. Mm-hmm. So it's, you know, becomes really difficult in terms of like, I want to step in all the time and, and be their advocate and help them. And I see how a diagnosis would be helpful in those situations. It would make it a lot easier because I can't always be in there all the time for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, it, but then that brings me back to, I just don't have the executive function to like get them diagnosed. <laughs> I got other stuff on my plate. So it's like, you know, I think it's, uh, um, I think that it's just 
there's so many like layers of, of complication when it comes to kind of really getting what you need in this crucial developmental period. Uh, uh, anyway, um, so I, uh, I guess, you know, on a lighter note, one thing I love to ask my guests is if you could rename ADHD to something else, uh, a little less confusing or problematic, would you call it something else? Yes. And I meant to look this up. Um, so the name that I liked the best was Dave. There was a oh, TikTok yeah. going around with Dave and, but now I forgot what Dave stood for. Let me see if I can find it real quick. It's Connor, um, DeWolf. He came up with it and yeah. Okay. To find a new name for ADHD. Why? Turns out they don't actually have a deficit in attention. They just can't regulate it. That explains the hyperfocus. Seems to be more of a regulation issue. Like with their sleep, it's either too much or too little. Everything they do is kind of just all or nothing. And they're only either understimulated or overstimulated. They lack dopamine. So what about dopamine, attention, variability, executive dysfunction? Dave, Dave. Love it. <laughs> so yeah, I actually love that. Dopamine, attention, vari- variability, executive dysfunction. I love it. It makes perfect sense. <laughs> It is a really good one. It's so creepy how that little blonde kid can so perfectly describe so many of our inner <laughs> inner I lives. Like, yes, yes to all of that. <laughs> uh, no, that is a good one. You know, because that's another thing, another conversation we have a lot, which is like, is it beneficial to call it a disorder? Is it detrimental to call it a disorder? You know, I, you know, I definitely don't fall into the category of it's a superpower. Uh, but I also think that, you know, often, like you've said in the past, like it's, it's often defined defined by its deficits, which is so problematic too, as well, because those deficits only exist in systems that are unfriendly to your brain, you know? Right. And that's what I try to do with, with my patients is, you know, we have what we have as far as our way of diagnosing it. Um, but I do always, you know, bring up, you know, the, po- the positive things are, are the reason that you're having difficulty is because the uh, school and or the work day, is a very recent, you know, phenomenon in in human history, and it's it's just not what our brain um, functions well as, and it's not something that it had to function well as because it hasn't been around long. So, um, yeah, I think it's very helpful. Like, it can be a disability; it absolutely can be a disability for people. So, I'm like you. Like, sometimes there's there's great things about being ADHD. There are hard things, and I think just being realistic about that and not just approaching it from the deficit point is what is what medicine misses. Like, yes, there are things we need help with, or we wouldn't be here trying to get help. Um, but they, but we just need to be more inclusive and real rounded with how we educate ourselves as clinicians um, on how to treat people with ADHD. Yeah, and I think the the general argument for giving the term disorder is that you know once it is taken as a clinical term, then it can be looked at as something you know where the child needs help and the child needs accommodations versus the child just is you know poor behavior, poor parenting, not trying hard enough, all of the ways in which kids are so you know dismissed, mm-hmm. and so that kind of medicalization, pathologization of the of the behaviors can be super helpful, I think, for, for especially for kids. Yeah, <sighs> I know it's um, fascinating. I always say the, the more I the more I learn about it, the less I know <laughs> about ADHD. Um, okay, so uh, I would love to kind of bring listeners to find you and and how can they work with you? I know do you work with clients outside of Wisconsin? I do. So, well, I do personal coaching. Um, so, as far as a psychiatrist, I only do I only work clinically uh, in Wisconsin. 
But outside of that, I do personal coaching, especially for neurodiverse uh, people or parents of neurodiverse kids. Um, and I also do trainings for like schools, churches, um, on how to interact with neurodiverse people, whether they're, you know, students or clients, or how to um, also do anti-racism trainings. So you can find me at www.insightfulconsultant, which is I-N-S-I-G-H-T-F-U-L-C-O-N-S-U-L-T-A-N-T dot org. Um, and you can find me there for either the trainings, if you want to bring trainings to your business, or if you want um, personal coaching services. I also am on um, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram under under one umbrella, which is my blog name under one umbrella. I have not written a blog in quite a while, <laughs> but you can go read my old blogs and that's <laughs> under one umbrella dot blog. Um, and you can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at under one umbrella. Now the, the work you do with training at companies, do you, is that, is that uh, working with neurodivergent um, employees or is that just anti-racist work or all of the above? Oh, uh, so I do trainings on anti-racism and then I do trainings just to be um, trauma-informed, but trauma-informed in a way that is that is inclusive of people that are neurodivergent, people that have, you know, trauma, PTSD. So basically how to um, not be more traumatic for people in your place of business, like like I said, my first job was very traumatic for me because between the racism and the neurodivergence, like they just had no idea what to do with me. Um, so they would be a perfect place to be trained by me. I'm <laughs> interested in that, but they, they know who they are. <laughs> <laughs> you know who you are. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but so yeah, I do that. And then also um, I do, um, so people that, or in administration, I have a couple couple of personal coaching clients um, that we actually do anti-racism or, I guess, um, cultural recognition work together, I guess is what you call it. Um, I really don't have a name for it, but I have a couple of clients that are like in administration at schools or, you know, churches or um, hospitals or whatever that just run things by me. Like they want to make sure if they have a situation at work that they're responsible for helping the uh, employee or you know, discipline an employee. They want to make sure that they're approaching it from an inclusive lens and they're not missing um, or approaching something from a bias that they don't realize they have. So they like might run situations by me and make sure they're not missing any cultural importance or not approaching it from a biased situation just to be more inclusive at work. Um, yeah, well, I, I hope there are more and more companies who are actually going in that direction. Um, it feels like such important work uh, mm-hmm. in those environments, especially as we come out of a two-year pandemic where (laughs) workplace environment is just so, just feels really hostile to people's mental health right now. Uh, I feel like we're in a very fragile space right now. So, well, thank you so much for, for taking this time to sit down with me and talk to me and allowing me to ask you all these questions (laughs) because I, 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 you know, I, I just think it's so important to, you know, have to expand the face of, you know, all of our experiences and you know like i said at the beginning you know like so we we have so many similarities in terms of how we came to our diagnosis and yet at the same time there's so many differences in terms of mm-hmm. who we are in society and how we are treated and how that treatment 
leads to so much of the trauma that then leads, you know, it becomes this cycle uh, in terms of our own neurodivergence. So thank you. And I so appreciate the even if you're not writing the blog anymore, some of that stuff is fantastic. I'm definitely, I'll put the link there. I think we're getting back to it. No. I know, right? It's ever, <laughs> but it is some evergreen, amazing stuff there. So thank you for all that you're putting out in there, in the world and for your speaking. And uh, I really appreciate you sitting down with me. So thank you. Thank you. And there you have it. Thank you for listening. And I really hope you enjoyed this episode of the Women and ADHD podcast. Also, you know, we ADHDers crave feedback and I would really appreciate hearing from you, the listener. If you're a fan of the podcast, please take a moment to leave me a review on Apple Podcasts or Audible. And if that feels like too much and I get it, then just take a few seconds right now to give me a five-star rating. Or share this episode on your own social media to help reach more women who maybe have yet to discover and lean into this gift of neurodivergency. And they may still be struggling and don't even know why. And if you'd like to find out more about me and my one-on-one coaching for women with ADHD, head over to womenandadhd.com coaching. And you can always find that link in the show notes. I'll see you next week when I interview another amazing woman who discovered that she is not lazy or crazy or broken, but she has ADHD and she is now on the path to understanding her neurodiversity and finally using this gift to her advantage. Take care till then.